Hello and welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield, and this is a podcast about our deepest values, the things that are sacred to us, and how we can get better at building understanding and empathy across the very many divides which increasingly seem to define our common life. How can we engage better with people who might be different from us or disagree with us, whether that's professionally, politically, philosophically or religiously. Every episode, I speak to someone who has some kind of public voice or platform and try to get to know them on a deeper level beyond the small talk, adversarial debate or positioning and the political posturing that defines so much of our public conversations. As always, because a non-needy podcast host is no podcast host at all, we would love if you would leave us a review. You can do it as you're listening, as you're walking along, on the loo, wherever you like. A rating on your podcast app always helps. And perhaps uh, the deepest joy we get is when someone gets in touch and says that they've used an episode of the podcast to spark or nurture a deeper conversation with someone they know. So feel free to send an episode of the podcast that you think someone might be interested in and say, this made me think about this and see where you end up. I do read all the emails and uh, tweets. I really love it when guests get in touch. There's been also quite a few great guest suggestions coming in. So please do keep those coming. In this episode, I spoke to James Perry. James is co-chair and co-founder of Cook, the very fancy and very delicious frozen food company. He is also co-founder and board member of the B Corporation, co-chairman of B Lab UK. And in the episode, you can hear a lot more about what B Corporations are and what they're trying to do. He is also a founding partner of Snowball, which is a multi-asset impact investment manager. Yep, I'm not entirely clear what that is either. And he has also been deputy chairman of the Social Stock Exchange. Basically, wherever people have been thinking about how business and capital can be used for positive social purpose, you will find James. We spoke about his three sacred values, original goodness, interdependence, and autonomy. He had the clearest and most thought out list of sacred values of anyone I've spoken to. We also spoke about him feeling politically homeless, the role of faith, and why he thinks it's possible for business to do good in the world. As usual, there are some reflections from me on the end of the episode. And meanwhile, I really hope you enjoy listening. James, I'm going to ask you what you hold sacred. It is not your classic conversation opener. And really, you can go wherever you like with it. Broadly, what I mean by it is a deep principle of value that if someone offered you money to give up, you would feel insulted. So you can bracket out your family. You can reject the premise of the question. You can take it where you like, but you've had a bit of time. What is sacred to you? Well, one of my values, actually, I wouldn't take money, is that I wouldn't take money to give it up because uh, the third the third of my sacred values is autonomy. But the first one is original goodness. Uh, the second one is interdependence. And the third one is autonomy. Amazing. I love, I love the headings. Right. Um, unpack those for me. <laughs> well, the first one, original goodness. I think people often look at others with a sort of spirit of judgment. And they ascribe some sort of malign intent to them. Um, and my one of my sacred values is that people are good underneath. There is a sort of original goodness in us all. Sometimes you have to dig quite deep and work quite hard to find it. But I believe it's there. 
And in some ways, that kind of inspires this idea that light and darkness are a kind of choice, you know. Um, you can sort of profit um, and benefit in the short term from making choices that you kind of know you probably shouldn't be making. But longer term, you know, you're you're better better off by choosing the light. And I think original goodness helps you to sort of lean into that goodness rather than layering on other stuff. Thank you. I'm sure we're going to feel that thread coming through more. Interdependence. Well, you know, I see that we've had one political idea over the last 50 years, uh, which is individualism, and it's kind of um, infiltrated both left and right. So the right theatres, um, you know, the uh, the sort of highest purpose is to maximise your own financial interests, profit maximising, uh, alpha investment, all of the rest of it. Um, and the left, I think, have sort of reduced people to sort of units of production and units of welfare and want to have wanted to build these giant sort of bureauc bureaucratic machines to process people. Um, I actually don't believe that we are individuals. I don't believe that we exist outside of a context. Uh, and that context is our community, our families, our relationships, but also the the, the planet and the ecosystems where we live. So I believe in interdependence. And that means that um, you sort of approach the world in a completely different way um, to approaching it as an, as an individualist, which is kind of how our political economy has recently evolved. Define alpha investing for me. Alpha investing is profit maximizing. So I put out capital and to some extent, well, to to all extents, the social and environmental consequences of that are not my problem uh, because I'm only interested in maximizing the financial interests. Got it. And your third sacred value? Is autonomy. Because I am a difficult fellow uh, and I don't like to take orthodoxies without challenging them and freedom to think, freedom to challenge and freedom to pursue an alternative path is uh, sacred to me. Do you, where do you find yourself politically? Do you feel homeless or is there a tribe that holds those three things together enough? Well, I think that ultimately it comes back to this point about interdependence versus individualism. I think that all of the political establishment has fallen into the trap of individualism. So for example, um, you know, Margaret Thatcher disseminated neoliberal economics in the UK. Ronald Reagan did it in the US. Mikhail Gorbachev kind of embraced it also. It's not gone challenged by the left. So Tony Blair and Gordon Brown they never challenged neoliberal economics. They never challenged the idea that the purpose of the economy is to maximize the financial interests of shareholders, um, which was an enormous error. But what it means is that for somebody who's an interdependent, I don't really have a, any anyone who speaks to me in the kind of conventional political realm. I think it's changing pretty fast. But what's interesting is it's changing pretty fast on both left and right. So I find people identify, I identify with and really... Um, yeah, and, and really kind of follow on both the left and the right. Helpful. Right, we've set the stage with some really meaty ideas. We want to wind back a little bit to get a sense of 
in some ways, how you got to those, how you got to where you are, what has formed you. So tell me a bit about your childhood and maybe adolescence and in particular, any big ideas that were around political, religious, philosophical, whatever. Paint us a picture. I suppose the two things that are worth saying is the first one is that my father had a sort of not, not quite a midlife crisis, but uh, he he decided he didn't want to be a teacher anymore when he was about 37 and I was about 10. And he um, became, he left the school where he was a teacher and he became unemployed for about, for some years. And so we had that backdrop to our sort of quite formative teenage years of, of, of a sort of certain amount of struggle. And he ended up going into business um, and starting his own small business. So kind of being raised in the, a small business environment with somebody who wasn't necessarily a natural business person was definitely one formative experience. And the other was my parents had a Christian faith, which I think when I was younger could be fairly characterized as conservative, evangelical, and possibly rather closed-minded. And they underwent their own kind of um, liberalization, I suppose, whereby they they embraced mystery and uncertainty and didn't confuse certainty with faith, which I think possibly they had done in my early life. So I experienced, as, as I was growing up as a formative experience, their own progression from A to B, which I think was very formative. And you watched your dad build a small business and it sounds like it wasn't straightforwardly joyful, but it planted a seed of interest in business yourself. Yeah, I think, I think possibly uh, the sort of slightly supercilious and obnoxious teenager was watching them thinking, hmm, I kind of like the idea of business, but I definitely want to figure out how to do it properly. And so you went to study it or did you do something else first? So just backing up a second, my my mum and dad started this business and one of their ideas was they thought that business, you had like a choice. You could either use business as a mechanism to express your values or you could use it as a sort of profit maximizing machine. They definitely chose the former. And when they, they, they had this, uh, famously, they... Um, they needed to make cakes and they persuaded a friend of theirs who was a cook to, to leave her job to make cakes with them. And uh, she had been a cook at a drug rehabilitation center. So the condition for her leaving was that she could employ the former residents of the rehabilitation center she'd been working at. And they agreed. So the recruitment strategy for this fledgling business was to recruit exclusively recovering heroin addicts which turned out to be a catastrophic recruitment policy. But what it did was embed this idea that you can use business as a force for good, which I think landed quite deeply with me. And then when I went off to train at Cadbury, which obviously was a great Quaker business rooted in values, rooted in the temperance movement, um, I experienced during the 1990s a program imaginatively entitled Managing for Shareholder Value, which was the systematic extraction of anything that was going to get in the way of maximizing profits in the short term. So the heart of the business was ripped out, um, sort of in front of my eyes. And that was a super formative experience as well, because I saw that as, you know, vandalism. 
And I thought, you know, shoving more chocolate down people's throats more quickly can't just be a good idea. But that was obviously how you make more money. An inspiring vision that you wanted to spend the rest of your life <laughs> in. Right. So you, right. left, you left Cadbury's. That's right. And, and joined my mum and dad's business, um, but really kind of with half an eye on my my elder brother had started a business which he'd called Cakes and Casseroles, which was um, the idea being home-cooked food sold to families for people who are good cooks but don't have the time necessarily to cook from scratch for themselves. So we kind of cooked from scratch for them. Um, and that was the idea. And he'd started that business. I joined my mum and dad business, which was also in catering and or in, in food production. So, um, and actually my brother was buying cakes from, sorry, was buying uh, yeah, cakes from the business that I took over from my mum and dad, but he wasn't paying for them. Um, so we had a sort of like, essentially, we had a kind of conversation um, around like, what's his future of his business, which, you know, he's an inspiring person. He's an incredible entrepreneur. He's got, he had so much potential. Whereas with my mom and dad's business, which was a bit of a kind of bit more, a bit less exciting. Um, Can I just ended- pause here and ask, yeah. are you the older or the younger brother? I'm the younger brother. But your younger, your your older brother wasn't paying you, so you had to have a... How <laughs> well, much look, were there brotherly, brotherly undercurrents in this seemingly very businessy conversation? He was, he was doing exactly what he should have been doing, which was managing his balance sheet and making the calculation that he could afford to get away without paying uh, us. And he was quite correct, actually. Um, he's a very, 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 very talented person and an incredible entrepreneur and he'd started this business and um, and I thought well that's got fantastic potential the business I'd inherited was well not inherited but I was running was um you know fabulous but 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 definitely didn't have the legs that that Ed Ed and his business had so essentially it made it made sense for both Ed and for me that we sort of merged those businesses together and then went forward together um so then we sort of rebranded cakes and casseroles as cook. Um, and, uh, you know, 20 years later, we're still doing it. Um, and we now have, you know, nearly 2000 people working for the company. So that's, so, but, but, but the point in some ways with, with respect to the, the formation and the formative idea, uh, is that cook needed venture capital. And so we spoke to venture capital funds back in the early 2000s, and came up against the same point that I'd experienced at Cadbury's, which is the purpose of business is to maximize profits for shareholders. You become a profit machine. That's the only role you have in society, uh, which I just, we disagreed with. So we never took the venture capital and that sort of propelled us into a whole different, um, a whole different journey and path. I want to hear more about that, but I want to just pull apart a thread about the way business plays out in public conversations and the wider kind of cultural role of business. And it's a bit of a sort of history of ideas, archaeology bit, because be- previously to your experience at the at Cabri's Quaker businesses and family banks and lots of other businesses, in fact, saw their role in society in our common life more broadly than just for shareholder value. But am I right in thinking sometime in the 70s and 80s, a particular story began to be told and began to be told more convincingly and gather allies 
that narrowed this view of business and you can call it a kind of neoliberal move. You can trace it to a, a kind of set of think tanks and a, a, a kind of economic school. How much do you think that move was about sort of winning the public conversation and how much was it really just a much more private thing about power and government and backroom lobbying? It comes back to original goodness, actually, Um, because I don't think there's some conspiracy of evil sort of moustache twirling capitalists who've rigged the system or anything like that. What actually happened was, you know, back in the 1950s and 60s, company bosses, you know, managers were, to some extent, in the perception of the shareholders, not operating the companies in the interests of its shareholders because what they were doing was using them more as like chattels you know so the company would give money to the managing director's wife's favorite charity kind of thing and it was felt that these companies were being run to some extent to the benefit of their of their own management which which was which was not you know right and therefore there's this sort of share this movement to sort of assert shareholder power and that coincided with this theory, I suppose, that said, look, as, the, as wealth is created, everybody benefits. As the, the tide comes in, all the boats rise. You know, wealth is created, taxes are paid, prosperity follows, there's a trickle-down effect, the state is able to then pay for public services and all the rest of it. And the 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 prosperity engine is business. And so therefore, business must single-mindedly focus on its role of generating wealth and government will look after everything else. You know, the businesses will pay their taxes, governments will create regulations which will manage any of the sort of negative consequences of that. And to be honest, like, you know, people demonize Milton Friedman. I don't like demonizing anybody. But he came up with a theory that kind of made sense when he looked, when, when, as an academic looking at the data that he was looking at. Unfortunately, we are now looking at a diff- very different set of data to what Milton Friedman was looking at in the 1960s and 70s, because we now know what the consequences of unfettered profit maximization are. And what we've learned is some of the core assumptions of that theory, for example, taxes will be paid. Well, taxes are too often not paid by the most wealthy. Uh, companies don't like paying taxes, so they domicile themselves in places which mean they don't need to. Companies don't like regulations which get in the way of maximizing profits, so they fix the lobby, or they just domicile themselves in somewhere that doesn't have any rules. And what happens is that you have this kind of divine right of capital because government isn't able to play its role where capital starts to operate like a plague of locusts on people and planet. Um, And what then happens is you look at the kind of the great acceleration um, and earth system trends. And over the last 50 years, this has led to a completely mind-blowingly catastrophic social and environmental destruction. And I think that what's happening is uh, that data now is getting so urgent and clear that even you know, the the followers of the theory are realizing that the theory doesn't work anymore. But we're really at a kind of tipping point with respect to that. Yeah. You just did exactly what I was about to ask you to do, which is put the best version of the argument. Because my experience of talking to people from a diff- range of different political and economic positions is 
very rarely does anyone set out with a big idea to change the world thinking that it will cause harm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they set out because there is a sense in which it is the best way to set up society and will equal more freedom, you know, more prosperity for a wider range of people. Those who who hold to that um, more classic kind of freedmanian economic position, I think, is very much where they'd come from. So it's really helpful to hear to hear you refuse to demonize that school. Um, when you set about building Cook and you weren't going to take venture capital for the reasons that we've talked about, and you had this experience at Cadbury's, what did that in concrete terms mean for the kind of business that you built? And what were some of the, guess, I guess, the challenges with that? Well, initially, we were exclusively focused on getting a business that was going to be able to thrive commercially. You know, like, so, and I, and I do think a lot of, you know, social enterprise or socially hearted business forgets the business bit at the outset. So they build this beautiful thing that doesn't make money, which actually can't then um, grow and, um, and persist. So, so we were super focused on just getting this business to work. Profitable. Right. And, and that frankly took most of the 2000s. Um, and then we got hit by the financial crisis, which very nearly um, did for us. We, we came out of it, um, but only just. And so, so really, we sort of sat back down once we came out of that financial crisis in sort of 2010, 2011, we were getting back on our feet. And we were starting to see that we were eating red meat as a business. We were going to get really strong and, and, and commercially things were sort of set. And then we sat down, Ed and I, and said, like, let's just remind ourselves why we're doing this. Um, and, you know, the first thing we did was, um, I mean, the first thing we did was talk about our values, basically, and have a big conversation within the company about values and what, what values do we stand for. But equally, we were, we were, we were aware that we had this different idea of business, but it was we were in danger of being a minority of one, and we we sort of felt like maybe we're mad, you know, if the whole world is telling us that this is what business is for and we don't agree, then maybe that the problem's with us. Um, so so we sort of went out to find others who had the same sort of insight, I suppose, and. We were very fortunate. Well, I was very fortunate because that was uh, that was my gig, and I found myself in San Francisco in 2010 at an event called SoCap, which stands for Social Capital Markets, and it was all of these kind of misfits and um, refuseniks who sort of washed up in San Francisco at, at a conference, saying, "Hang on a sec, this, this is wrong," and and they were all talking about their ideas for alternatives. And at that event, I one of the people talking about their ideas for alternatives was one of the founders of the B Corp movement. And I just heard this person speak and I just thought, bingo, you know, Eureka, you, you've cracked it. Um, because what they'd done was they had taken an alternative idea to, you know, neoliberal economics and they'd effectively bottled it and formularized it and been able to offer it to people like us to, to sort of become um, it's like an identity. So, so we adopted that identity and really that gave us a massive impetus for change. You've been part of the leadership of B Corps in the UK and really rolling out this alternative for complete lay people. Explain what a B Corp is and how it challenges the kind of economic logic you've been talking about. 
So the default company is operated legally for the benefit of its shareholders. And that is enshrined in company article, memorandum and articles of association, but also in section 172 of the Companies Act. And without getting too geeky, what a B Corp does is it changes, it reinvents business, it reinvents the company, because it says that rather than being operated to benefit its shareholders, it becomes operated to benefit the planet, communities, uh, workers and shareholders, but those four constituencies rank alongside each other. So no one has primacy over the other. And the role of the company directors is to balance the interests of those four different stakeholder groups. Uh, and then what the B Corp, the certified B Corporation community does is it says, well, we in order to work out whether or not you're doing that, you need a sort of quality system and a measurement system to help you think through whether you're doing that for those four different constituencies. So it has an assessment which you take. Um, it helps you to think about what actions you should be taking, and then it effectively gives you a sort of, it rates you. And if you achieve a certain level of performance, you can certify as a B Corporation. You have to change your legal articles and you have to... Uh, reach a certain level of performance. How significant do you think it's been in changing the public understanding of what business is for? Well, it's interesting. I mean, the answer to that question is I don't know um, because attribution is terribly difficult. But, you know, when I look back to 2010, when we were having these conversations, you'd walk into a bank or a, a business and people would look at you like you were mad. Like, what's this person even talking about? You like, you haven't you got the memo? Like, that's just the wrong answer. I used to go around sort of proselytizing this uh, in very hostile, hostile places. But what happened was the, the audience started to change in terms of its approach. It, you know, initially we, we were sort of like someone would invite us and everyone would look at the person who'd invited us saying, well, I've invited these crazy people, you're fired. And then sort of three or four years later, we'd go to these places and they sort of start, they were sort of listening, you know, and, and then we started getting inviting to places and there'd be people sort of sitting on, on, the, on the edge of their seat saying, do you tell me more and explain this? And there was a completely different energy to it. And what's essentially, I think that, that coincides with what's happened in the sort of the last decade is the evidence has become so overwhelming of the unthinkable, heartbreaking destructiveness of our current economic system, that the people at the top of it, having basically lived in denial for so sufficiently long, no longer can, you know, and their kids are asking them questions they can't answer. Things like Extinction Rebellion have really landed their point, And they're going, hang on a sec, I think we might have a problem here. Um, and actually, the, the stuff that we're talking about is a lot less hostile to them, possibly, than, you know, the kind of total revolution, smash it all up brigade. Have you flirted with the total revolution, <laughs> smash it? Why, why is this the answer and not full socialism? I've spoke to Ash Sarkar on the podcast. She's all for fully automated luxury communism. And I do think there is a, a serious move amongst younger generations towards more radical Marxist positions? I try to walk a tightrope between what, what's pragmatic and achievable um, versus what's necessary. 
so I go to some people and they look at me like I'm a completely insane radical for what I'm suggesting. And I go to other people and they think I'm the worst sort of middle-aged white man force of conservatism. And it's weird. Um, but that kind of tells me I'm probably in roughly the right place. <laughs> um, look, I think that I think that I am really super suspicious of uh, anarchy and chaos because I think that it leads to and, and really dislocate big dislocations and fundamental, you know, fragmentation change. Because I think that it tends the people that suffer most are the the least powerful in that scenario. So broadly, if there's a if there's a possibility to rapidly evolve rather than turn completely upside down, I'm on that side. I do think the evolution needs to be rapid and I think it needs to be pretty muscular. So for example, with the climate collapse, and this is me speaking personally, I wouldn't, um, certainly I'd, 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 B-Lab wouldn't, you know, any, none of the re- organizations that I represent wouldn't necessarily say this, but they might, I don't know. But um, pers- speaking personally, when I look at the climate collapse, I think this is the, the this is the humankind's greatest ever engineering challenge. And it's a, a massive engineering challenge as well as a cultural, spiritual challenge. The greatest engineering machines we have on planet Earth are the oil companies, essentially. They, they hire all the engineers and they aren't to be trusted because they are governed by shareholder value, ultimately. What do we do about the urgency that we're facing? Personally, I would find some way to sort of, on a global scale, nationalize all of those engineering machines and deploy them for the benefit of the energy transition. That's super ra- like that's super radical, right? But I just look at the problem and think I can't think of a better way to look at the engineering side of that problem. You know, so I have elements of radicalism in me, but broadly, I don't think that the market-based system of enterprise is worth um, is is worth fundamentally preventing. Mm. So talk to me, you've mentioned the kind of spiritual challenge. What role does faith continue to play or the heritage of your parents' faith play in your thinking now, if any? Well, I, I have a faith which informs my whole life and approach to everything. I distinguish faith from religion. I tend to see religion as something that man usually, or certainly humans, have invented as a sort of power system to put around God. I think that faith is something different. So I'm sort of, I do attend a church, but I feel quite de-churched, if you know what I mean, um, in my heart. Uh, So I think that, you know, I was listening to some of your other um, contributors on the podcast and and like them, I think often it comes to being able to take yourself out of your context and elevate your consciousness and raise your eyes and focus on something bigger than your own situation. And that could be God. Um, It could be something like our planet, you know, like it's just about having that sort of meta context to think about stuff, which is terrifically helpful and does lead to different outcomes. I am, I think, unusual 
amongst self-described Christians, although there's always challenges with that language, in feeling relatively um, positive is the wrong word in that I think there are huge challenges for institutions, but I certainly feel tuned into an enormous spiritual openness. And I think part of what's driving it is exactly this pressure, this sense of the trajectory that we are on is not working. And um, Vanessa Zoltan, who has uh, is a kind of atheist chaplain and podcaster, talked about leaving her NGO and education work to go to divinity school, even as an atheist Jew, because she was like, the injustices we've baked into the system are a soul problem. And so I feel the openness and, and the energy for an ethical, more human, particularly more equal way of living from the younger generation coming through. But what I don't know is where are the places and the communities and the practices that people can connect with to do the kind of deep spiritual work that will need to go alongside an engineering problem, right? That we have been raised to be expect to live in a certain way and for business to do a certain thing. And now we need that to change. Do you see the need I'm talking about and are you hopeful or do you have predictions about where people might get those needs met? I think that what you're reaching into is the kind of like the kind of the heart of the issue, which is change. You know, we need to change ourselves from within. We can't, we can't expect this to be done for us. I think we have four, four superpowers. Uh, the first one is our talent which is like where we work. The second one is our spending, you know, and that shapes the world where we, where we spend. The third one is our saving, um, which is like our pensions or whatever. And the fourth one is our vote. Um, and I kind of think that we need to mobilize them all, but particularly actually the first three. So, you know, am I working for one of these whatever it might be, that businesses, for example, that are part of the problem? And if so, can I not take my talent elsewhere? You know, how am I consuming? Am I buying, you know, single-use plastic bottles and feeding them and feeding the monster? You know, where are my eyeballs? Like, talent is also my time. So it's not just where I work. It's also where are my eyeballs? Am I spending lots of time on Instagram and TikTok and the rest of it feeding the advertisers, you know, um, or actually am I taking my eyeballs elsewhere? So we just need to take responsibility for how we show up in the world in a much more holistic and complete way. And I think there's loads of ways to do that. And the minute we do that, then we, ha- we, will, we will find that we have quite a lot of power, but we might need to organise in new ways to, to bring that about. I worked at the BBC and then I worked at a charity. I don't, <laughs> I don't have a lot of sense of the kind of internal workings of business. So my main posture is as a consumer and also someone who receives a huge amount of advertising. And when we think about the public conversation, advertising is like this white noise. And one of the key messages that has changed in the last few years is this sense of businesses wanting to tell us that they are making this change, that they are being responsible, that they are reducing their carbon, that they are adopting more progressive social mores or whatever is the thing they think is going to make us want to buy their things. How do we attentively and mindfully 
listen, because frankly, I think there's quite a lot of bull and there's quite a lot of greenwashing or cynical feeding of the pre-existing model with a kind of faint dusting of the kind of change we need to get to. Am I being too cynical? And how do we navigate that? So you're not being too cynical. They, you know, there's there's the old adage, um, people are our most important asset, when in fact what they meant was money is our most important asset. Um, Money is the most important asset for these companies, unless they've changed their governance. So, you know, I think I think it's really worthwhile to look at uh, governance. Like, are the who? What's it for? Like, what's its why? Why is it in business? Facebook, for example, is in business to make as much money as it possibly can for its Wall Street investors. You are raw material on their site. Your eyeballs are all they're really interested in. And they will do whatever they have to do in order to keep your eyeballs gripped to their site. Now, actually, it turns out that the most effective way to do that is to serve you loads of fake news and get you enraged. And that's, so that's what they do. And will that ever change because they've signed up to some, I don't know, better, better social manipulation guidelines or something? Of course it won't. Um, it, it will change if they're not maximizing profits from their users, you know, and that's what you can trust. And don't believe, I wouldn't believe anything other than that. It's all blah, blah, blah. Because And don't forget, they've got an enormous amount of power. I mean, one of the biggest publishing platforms in the world. They're one of the richest companies in the world. They can, and their job is manipulation, right? They intermediate all human relationships and they have a vested interest in manipulating those relationships to retain eyeballs. So, you know, they don't want you, for goodness sake, they don't want you to meet in person because it means you're not on their app. So I don't know. I just think we need to be pretty realistic about it all. And when we're thinking about the role business plays in public conversations, there's the advertising. But then I was trying to think of who are the voices of business in public that I know about? You know, you kind of have, these are the cultural voices. These are the voices on education. The the big spheres of society don't have exactly spokespeople, but as I'm thinking as someone who used to book the moral maze, if I wanted someone to come speak about this thing, I'd get this person or this person. Usually they're quite big personalities, but with the exception of perhaps Alan Sugar, and a small number of others, it feels to me that business leaders have, in lots of ways, perhaps deliberately tried to keep below the radar of public conversations, to have it feel very institutional, you know, group, you know, groups that speak on behalf of all businesses, but very bland, not, not, um, almost only thrust into that conversation when they have to be. But I get the impression a lot of the actual conversations happen much more directly with government around legislation. Am I, am I narrating that in a way that you recognize? Would it help if people like you, other business leaders, tried to be more public and personal about the impact of what they're doing? Yeah. Business leaders have been completely absent from the public cultural space. Uh, you know, someone like Alan Sugar is an entertainer. You know, and the BBC have been complicit in allowing this kind of grotesque idea of business to be pretty much the only one that they give airtime to. And that's been massively corrosive. You know, this idea of, kind of, for example, workplace bullying and toxic behavior 
as being the norm in business is just unbearably unhelpful. And the BBC as a public service broadcaster should be ashamed of itself. I'm, I'm hugely in favour of the BBC as an idea, but I think they've really let business down by, by enabling that. But I get it, it's entertainment. And in fact, to be fair to the BBC, they don't even programme it as business programming now. They programme it as entertainment, which is kind of what it is. So whatever. But, um, but to, to the sort of deeper point, you know, when business is charged with, with maximising profits for shareholders, the last thing they want is too much scrutiny because or, or cultural uh, energy in that because it's not a it's not a cultural point. They just it's much easier for them to get their heads down. Or everything they need to influence, they can influence in the lobby. So they spend a huge amount of money on, you know, corporate affairs professionals whose job it is to influence public policy. They spend a huge amount of money on corporate relations and investor relations professionals to sort of manage their reputation effectively. Um, but they're only doing that with very targeted constituencies, i.e the investor community, the financial services industry. They're not interested in anything else. And whenever they have uh, shown an interest in it, it's gone really badly for them. I don't know if you saw Back to the Floor, which I thought was a terrific idea, but quite quickly corporate bosses realized it was just a really bad idea um, and they stopped doing it. (laughs) And the final point is actually, as this breaks down, as we realize that government is incapable of regulating business in a way that discharges its responsibilities, business leaders are starting to internalize those responsibilities and taking them inside their businesses. So like, like for example, Cook or the B Corporation movement, you know, so we're, we're buying exclusively renewable energy not because a regulator has told us to, because it's the right, it's the right thing to do, even though it costs us um, money. So what then happens is the business community, because of the failure of government, are becoming politicized and are actually starting to take, starting to think about these things in ways that this sort of old model didn't require them to. They didn't need to think about any of this stuff. It was a job of policymakers. We're all starting to think about it. And that is going to lead to a much more interesting cultural voice for business, I think. James, a final question on what have you learned about what helps make conversations across different or in really deep disagreement, easier, better, more productive? Whether whether you're talking to the kind of dinosaur guard who thinks that business is doing anything other than profit making would be a disaster, or you're talking to a Marxist that thinks all business is evil and cannot possibly do any good in the world, what helps? (laughs) Well, I think three things actually, um, which are in fact coincidentally, the same as my sacred values. The first one is original goodness. So believing that whoever it is you're talking to is is okay and not sort of the devil incarnate. The second one is interdependence, which is a recognition that, you know, I can't have everything my own way because actually we have to find a way to cohabit because we, re- we rely on each other, we need each other. And the third one is autonomy, which is let's not try to, wherever we can, avoid imposing ourselves on other people because that really upsets people. And the more that we can respect one another's autonomy, the better. Um, I, I suppose within all of that, there's this kind of higher focus. I think, I think the best way to bring people together is to elevate to, a, to, to that place where we are all aligned. Ultimately, we're all hurtling through space on the great spaceship Earth. 
um, and we won't be here in a hundred years' time. So it'll be the time of others. And you know, those sorts of slightly bigger framings can be terribly helpful. I think for letting us just lay down our very parochial, um, personal stuff. James Perry, thank you so much for speaking to me on The Sacred. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So James kicked off the episode with three sacred values. And often this question really throws people because it's not your standard question. And I get the impression that it lingers in people's minds for a long time as they work out what's sacred to them. But James obviously had really thought about this uh, and has really tried to shape his life around it in quite explicit ways. I wonder if it's actually that as a leader of a business, you're continually being asked to write value statements. And he has both done that in business settings and done it for himself personally. Um, But they were really clear that original goodness, interdependence and autonomy and as I was listening, I actually realized there's quite a strong tension between interdependence and autonomy. And I wish we'd spoken more about that. I can really feel the um, the mix of that in James, the way it does leave him politically homeless, that he is both an idealist and extremely uh, pragmatic, that he wants us to acknowledge how much we're connected to each other. And also he just wants to be left alone. Um, and I wonder uh, how navigating that tension, and maybe we all have tensions between the things that are deep to us. I was reminded again, as I am almost every episode, how much our parents shape us. I mean, I find it frankly terrifying as a parent, the responsibility, the way that the choices that we make now will show up so clearly in our um, children's biographies and the choices that our parents made show up in our own stories um, I can imagine James being really quite annoying as a teenager, trying to teach his mum and dad about business. I also really valued his honesty that actually for 10 years, they were just focused on making a profit and then they were just focused on survival. And that, you know, that realistic sense that businesses that don't make money can't survive, um, that was refreshing to me because I feel like a lot of the social enterprise and the so business for social purpose space tries to gloss over that fact. And maybe it's just helpful um, to be a bit more straightforward about it. And it also reminded me that running a business that does good in the world is incredibly difficult because running a business that survives is incredibly difficult. Um, and when you add the extra layer, maybe it's not an extra layer, when you try and stay true to an earlier sense of what the purpose of business was. It is just incredibly demanding and requires a huge amount um, of business leaders, a huge amount of commitment and time and energy and character. And it makes me think, how could the rest of us support them and encourage them and cheer them on and maybe challenge them? In that, given the disproportionate power of business in the world, um, I increasingly feel mildly despairing about the ability of government to tackle the complex problems that are facing us. And maybe it is business, business with a conscience, business formed by people of character that can 
actually get their hands on some of these problems, but also maybe it isn't. And um, I think that question will linger. Really helpful challenge in there about consumers, that we have superpowers, that we all have the ability to choose who we work for, that we have an ability to choose where our pensions are and where our savings are. And it's so annoying every time I ring up my pension and pensions people and and try and hack my way through to where my money actually is and what is it doing. And still, after 10 years of impact investment and um, real changes in this sector, how little they have thought about what it might mean for me not to want my money in um, in a range of industries beyond just, you know, not in not in weapons, <laughs> that their uh, ethical framework is so narrow. And um, I was struck again by how much of these questions are just soul work. They're about the kind of people we are and the kind of communities that we're in that help us keep making hard choices, I guess, for business leaders choosing to get their energy from carbon neutral places, even if it's more expensive, requires a strength of character and commitment. And I find theology so helpful here and religious thinking so helpful here. And I'd love if we could be more straightforward about talking about the role of spirituality in helping business do good in the world um, and be a bit less allergic to that. And I'm also left with the sense that I often am about just how complex and overwhelming the world is. There's so many industries that I know nothing about, so many systems that no one I know knows anything about and yet are shaping our lives in such deeply formative ways. Um, and the tension between really wanting to go local and small and serve the common good at a human scale, you know, loving my neighbour, literally my neighbour, and then this sense of not being able to abdicate responsibility for the global, complex, interrelated world. And what does it mean for those of us called to those systems to be doing good there? And what does it take for us to do that in ways that are resilient and hopeful and honest? Ugh, much to chew on. I would love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Sacred. Remember, sharing is caring, as my four-year-old says. So please do send this or another episode to a friend, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or my personal favorite, leave us a review. I really get a thrill when I see a new one pop up. Huge thanks to Abby Allison for research and production support and Emily Dam for our visual identity. We are edited by Drew Hawley and our music is composed and arranged by Luke Stanley with vocals by Lizzie Harvey. The Sacred is a project of the Think Tank Theos and you can find out more about our work at theosthinktank.co.uk.